0: There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends, but who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nare Youssef, and today we're talking about osteoporosis. Osteoporosis weakens bones, making them susceptible to sudden unexpected fractures. The disease often progresses without any symptoms or pain and is not found until bones fracture. Today we will talk to our Cleveland Clinic experts regarding steps you can take to prevent this disease and treatments that may be needed. And here with us today, we have two experts. We have Associate Professor of Medicine for the OBGYN and Women's Health Institute, Dr. Pellen Batur, glad mm-hmm. to have you. Mm-hmm. And we also have with us Head of the Center for Osteoporosis and Metabolic Bone Disease and Rheumatologist, Dr. Chad Deal. Thank you. Nice mm-hmm. having you as well. Um, I wanna start first of all with Dr. Batur. I wanna explain to myself and to the audience why we need a woman's health aspect to this, why it's important that you're here.
1: Yeah, um, hormonal treatments are uh, can be very, very helpful for bone, because obviously for most uh, patients with osteoporosis it's going to be postmenopausal women who have a lost estrogen, and um, hormone therapy, which we'll talk about a little bit more, Mm -hmm. there's a better understanding of risks versus benefits, and it's, you know, there was a scare many years ago that it's a, a lot of risk and not much benefit, and now we really understand that depending on the woman, you can really get a lot of benefits from hormones bone health being one of them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, we use um, hormonal treatments to minimize the duration of use of our other bone agents. So we really work closely together uh, between Women's Health and the um, Osteoporosis Center um, to help treat our patients. Sure, excellent, thank you. And for our viewers, uh, whoever's
0: watching, you can leave your questions in the comment section below. If you have any questions, we'll ask them live here. And before we begin, please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. All right, so let's start, Dr. Deal, with explaining what is osteoporosis. Mm-hmm.
2: So most people know osteoporosis as a disease that causes fractures. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, though, for a very long time, you can have osteoporosis and not even know it. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a what we call a micro-architectural deterioration of bone. So think of a think of a, a skyscraper. Mm. as it goes up with all these girders and as time goes on in your bone you're missing a few of those girders which creates weakness and the weakness gradually accumulates until you have a fracture. Mm. So it's really important uh, for both men and women to get a test for osteoporosis prior to the fracture because in most cases we can actually prevent the fracture if we know that the patient has either osteopenia which is a little bit not quite as bad as osteoporosis in advance and use some of the drugs whether it's hormone replacement or bisphosphonate therapy or many of the other drugs that we have. Okay.
0: So before a fracture ever happens, is, are there any symptoms that the patients may be feeling and not knowing that could be osteoporosis?
2: Right, and that's why we've, we've called it the silent thief. Yes. Uh, so people generally, they don't have any symptoms until a fracture occurs so that's very different than for instance osteoarthritis, where if you have it in your knee, you're gonna have stiffness and swelling as as an early warning sign that the joint is deteriorating. But Mm -hmm. with osteoporosis, no you have no symptoms.
0: All right. And then wh- who's at risk? I know women are definitely at risk, and it's called also a woman's disease, correct? Some people refer to it.
1: There's a lot of men that are underdiagnosed. So it's not just mm. a woman's disease, but it is most common in women after menopause. So we're really looking at anybody who's lost their sex steroids. So that would be mm. estrogen for women and testosterone for men. Uh-huh. Um, also, you know, patients who have been thin throughout their life, which we define as less than 127 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a risk factor. Certain medical conditions, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis will increase risk. Those who've had a previous fracture are at a risk for another fracture. Mm-hmm. And we also look closely at the medication list. Um, so for example, uh, uh, Women who've had uh, chemotherapy, for example, for breast cancer, and are now taking anti-estrogen treatments. Mm -hmm. Um, People who are taking steroids. Um, So those would all be things that we look at at the med list to see if they're on a medication that could increase their risk.
0: Is age a big factor as well? Age is one of the
1: biggest factors.
0: Okay, why is that? So so
1: if we look at any bone density, and let's say uh, somebody has a bone density that's in the osteopenia range, not quite osteoporosis, Mm -hmm. um, and they are 50 years old, their risk of fracture is going to be much lower as opposed to somebody with that same bone density who's now 65. Mm. So in fact, for each five years that passes um, after age 65, you're essentially doubling your risk of fracture. So age is one of the biggest
2: things that we worry about for fractures.
0: And then, so the cause is unknown, um, but how does that disease develop?
2: Well, we do know a lot of the causes for low bone mass or osteoporosis. About Mm -hmm. 70% of peak bone mass is genetically determined. Mm-hmm. So by the time you're 25 or 30, 70% of your bone mass is done. Wow! That's why it's really important to have a healthy lifestyle as a youth. That includes not smoking and low alcohol intake mm-hmm. and lots of exercise and normal body weight. But there are environmental issues, as Dr. Batur has already mentioned, uh, that affect peak bone mass. Sure. Okay, sure. So, um, there are, um, so So a lot of the times it's known, but the, the genetics of it are uh, very complex. There are at least 100 genes or more that control peak bone mass, bone loss. So you might think of genes that control vitamin D metabolism or calcium absorption or osteoblast function. These are the cells that produce new bone, or osteoclasts, the cells that break down bone. So there are lots of genes involved that we don't understand.
0: Sure, sure. Are there certain um, diseases or medical conditions that contribute to bone loss more than others?
2: Yeah, so the reason I'm here, I'm a rheumatologist. I got interested in this because many of my diseases can result in bone loss. Mm -hmm. One would be rheumatoid arthritis. In fact, rheumatoid arthritis is a risk factor. If you go to this FRAX website, if you just Google in FRAX on your computer, you can calculate your 10-year risk of a fracture. And rheumatoid arthritis is, is one of the risk factors. In addition, for all the inflammatory diseases that rheumatologists treat with steroids, that's a huge risk factor. So we're talking about cortisone, prednisone, those types of medications. They're very big risk factors. But it's not only rheumatology. All subspecialties use steroids or prednisone as part of their treatments for various inflammatory diseases.
0: Right, right. And the medications can also, there are some medications that can cause... Some bone well, I
2: think Dr. Batur also already mentioned aromatase inhibitors, and in mm-hmm. women with breast cancers; those are anti-androgen therapy right. for men. It's anti-antiestrogen, uh, anti-androgen therapy in men with prostate cancer, for instance. That's a ri- big risk factor. But there are others, like seizure medication Dilantin, that accelerate vitamin D metabolism and can cause uh, low bone mass. So there are lots of medications that can do this, can sure. accelerate the process. Sure.
0: Okay, and now like let's switch on to the dietary factors and you talked about that a little bit even when by your by the age twenty five or earlier you should be healthy. Let's talk about diet. Is there dietary factors that can contribute to this disease?
1: I'm glad you're asking me this question because I'm going to keep rewinding this uh, okay. for my kids. Okay, <laughs> so good, then, good. That's just like important. like you said, you know, 20 2030, yes. we're building a presumption that's without reaping. Yeah, I mean, what you're doing throughout your uh, youth and uh, with your lifestyle, it really makes a big difference. So yeah. we want to make sure that patients are getting enough calcium. Yes. Um, we prefer dietary calcium as opposed to supplements whenever possible. Uh-huh. Realize that that's not always possible. We have patients, you know, uh, who have gastrointestinal issues or lactose intolerance they may not be able to get adequate dairy calcium or you know it's dairy is your best way of getting calcium there's other ways but if you're lactose intolerant it's going to be hard for you to get that Mm -hmm. Um, so getting enough calcium is probably one of the most important things and it, truth be told, nobody knows exactly how much calcium is required. Mm-hmm. There's some controversy with that, but we think somewhere around 1,000, 1,200 milligrams a day. Okay. And I see people who are either getting way too little calcium or sometimes getting way too much because mm. that amount, the 1,000 to 1,200, should be everything, including supplements and what's in your diet. Okay. So there could be too much calcium
0: mm-hmm. that can also cause to bone loss.
1: It you won't cause it bone way. loss, but... Um, you know, adding extra calcium is never going to help you to build your bone. Either you're going to pee it out or there's some concern about whether uh, you know, it leaches out into the arteries. Mm. You know, calcium is a safe supplement overall but just like anything else, too much is, you want everything to be in moderation, too much of anything isn't good. Plus it's constipating, most most types of calcium. Right. What Mm. about lifestyle choices?
2: So, lifestyle includes exercise, you're Mm -hmm. talking about things like that, so a good example of exercise would be as if, uh, if you go into space, uh, you lose about one to two percent of your lumbar spine bone density every month. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. total weightlessness. So obviously that's not something that our audience is going to experience, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if you're a couch potato, you, know, you can lose bone mass, not to that extent that's too. Uh, so weight-bearing activity is really important. And when I say weight-bearing, I'm not talking about lifting weights. We're talking about heel strike, so putting your foot to the floor and sending a mechanical stimulus through your skeleton. We have cells in our body called osteocytes that are mechanoreceptors, and they take that vibration and they turn it into something that stimulates osteoblasts to produce new bones. Wow. So that kind of lifestyle is really important. I think we've already mentioned calcium, we've already mentioned smoking, smoking and drinking. alcohol. Alcohol mm-hmm. is a direct toxin to mm-hmm. osteoblasts, the kind of the cut point for that for men is about three drinks a day, 21 a week. It wow. may be less for women. Or toxic to the cells. Smoking nicotine is really bad for mm-hmm. your bone. Yeah, there's nothing nicotine is good for, right, including true. the bone.
0: Sure, sure. And even those guys in space have treadmills, and they have certain things to do to keep to their treadmills. bones strong, right? Because yeah, they, they do. Lose a lot and, of
2: bone mass. You know, the Cleveland Clinic was involved in a project to try to to do what we call counteract um, the the effects of weightlessness, so that we can go to Mars and in order to do that you've got to do some kind of weight bearing activity going to mars mm-hmm. and back otherwise you're in, you're in real trouble and so that that's an experiment that's still ongoing at NASA and Johnson City but it started at the Cleveland Clinic wow
1: that's amazing you didn't know that and i think it's important to emphasize it's not just about taking a supplement or getting half an hour of working out in a day it's really about lifestyle, you know, being eating nutritious foods, taking good care of yourself. And I do see people who are taking a bunch of supplements, but they go on these fad diets um, and they lose a bunch of weights that, you know, of course we want you to be a healthy weight, but they do it through eliminating of a lot of wholesome foods. Okay. And then I see a huge decline in their bone density, mm. you know, the year after. Um, so it's really, there's there's a lot to be said for just taking plain old good care of yourself.
0: So it's kind of reversible, like you can, you can fix is that if, if your bones are starting to be weak, you can fix it with your lifestyle and uh, dietary choices. Yeah, to a certain extent, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we talked about how there's no signs or symptoms for osteoporosis, but what you, I know you mentioned earlier there's a test that people mm-hmm. should take. What age, who should take it, and what okay, test are we talking so, about? Okay,
2: so the, kind of the guideline <laughs> My guideline is a little bit different than the official guideline. So the official guideline is every woman at age 65 should have a bone density test. But okay. if you have clinical risk factors for bone loss, mm-hmm. you know, so that would be low body weight or smoking or family history or previous fracture, it really should be at menopause. Because sure. so many women enter menopause uh, with low bone mass already and there's a, a subset of women that can lose up to 5% of their bone mass every year wow. for six years, you can lose a third of your bone mass wow. In a six-year period, and the only way to really attack that is to know if you need to treat it right away. And a bone density test is the best way to do that. For men, the guideline is age seventy, unless there's risk factors, and in which case we do it at age fifty.
0: Okay, and this we're talking about like a bone density test. Yeah, right? and
2: it's a hundred-dollar test. It's part of uh, Welcome to Medicare. So okay. when you get a when you go uh, get your Medicare insurance, that's part of the test. It's covered by Medicare, but most commercial insurance will pay for it. If you have risk factors, and I think it's it's a it's a it's a test that's well worth the hundred dollars, even if you had to pay for it yourself, in mm-hmm. order to maintain skeletal integrity and prevent fractures.
0: Can you describe to the audience, kind of like walk through what kind of uh, test, like what what does it look like? What to expect going into a bone density? Yeah, it's
2: it's really really easy. It takes about five or ten minutes. You lie on a table, and there's a X-ray beam that sends a X-ray through your Um, skeleton, the hip and the spine, and the amount of x-ray that gets through the bone and is detected on the other side is proportional to the amount of calcium Mm. in the bone. Okay. Okay. And uh, when I say x-ray, remember this is a very low x-ray procedure. It's about one-tenth of the amount of x-ray of a chest x-ray. It's Mm. about the same amount of radiation you get flying from Cleveland to San Francisco, so it's not something you should worry about in terms of x-ray exposure.
0: That's going to be my next question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, let's jump on to treatments. I want to talk to you about treatments, what treatments there are. And I know for women, it's probably
1: different for men. So we'll kind of tag team and talk about that. Yeah, we have lots of treatments available, um, so we have hormonal treatments, um, which technically the hormone replacement therapy for the younger woman is meant to be for preventing osteoporosis and fractures, mm-hmm. but we do have great data, many, many years of data that suggests it actually helps prevent fractures, um, and hip fractures, which is, which is important because not all medications available have been shown to prevent hip fractures, which is one of the types of fractures that we really worry about because that's mm-hmm. the one that, um, you know, can really impact a, you know, affect disability in right. terms of putting you into a nursing home or increasing your chance of having a bad outcome and increasing death. So um, that's where hormone therapy can be very helpful, especially for the younger woman who's got pretty severe bone loss. Right. Um but we have not many, many non-hormonal uh, options available. Um, we have what we call also designer hormones, so mm-hmm. these are called selective estrogen receptor modulators, SERMs, or um, sometimes people call them estrogen receptor agonists antagonists, uh, but really what the D- name is trying to find is that it works like an estrogen in some body parts and as an anti-estrogen on other body parts. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the one that we have approved for bone health is an anti-estrogen at the breast. So, it's also used for breast cancer prevention. Oh, okay. um, it's a I would define it as a little bit of a weaker bone medication. So, this is probably a perfect idea. Uh, ideal candidate for that one would be a younger woman that has um, significant bone loss and. Uh, She has a family history of breast cancer, okay? Mm -hmm. And she wants to prevent that risk, but her risk of fracture right now isn't that high because she's still younger. And so what you can do is you can kind of insert that therapy for five years or so, so you kind of postpone when she's going to switch over to another therapy. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. There's bisphosphonates. Um, These are the bone medications that come in um, pill form, injectable form, um, oftentimes just taken once a week or once a month. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we have also bone builders and other injectables. Great. Would you be taking the same approach? <laughs> I know yeah, you're more of a. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay.
2: So the bone builders, what Dr. Batur was mentioning, are our anabolic. So we divide therapy into anabolic or bone building and anti-resorptive, and the anti-resorptives prevent bone resorption or bone breakdown, and those include estrogens and the SERMs that were mentioned, along with the bisphosphonates. The bone builders we have two of them now, Mm -hmm. we have Forteo and Temlos, and they're both PTH analogs, PTH being parathyroid hormone. And they're injections, and they're expensive, but for patients at high risk for fracture, Mm -hmm. who've already had fracture, who have very low T-score, they're our kind of go-to drug for the severe osteoporosis case, and I think they're uh, underutilized and should be considered in patients with severe osteoporosis.
0: Now, I, yeah, okay. I was
2: going to say for the bisphosphonate medications, you, you may have been asked, were going to ask me that, mm-hmm. there's a real fear of using these medications now. And the two things that people think about as side effects are these atypical fractures or this brittle bone and osteonecrosis of the jaw. So I always tell my patients, there's no free lunch. There's always a risk to everything you do. You mm-hmm. could take an aspirin tablet swallow and it could stick on your esophagus and it could burn a hole in your esophagus right. if you don't do it properly. Yeah. So our job as osteoporosis specialists is, is are to treat people at r- high risk for fracture so that the benefit of the drug outweighs the risk. Now having said that, atypical fracture risk is with these drugs, these are thigh bone or hip fractures that occur spontaneously with long-term therapy. They don't really occur in the first three years of bisphosphonate therapy. Mm. Their, their issues related to long-term therapy. And for that reason, we have guidelines now for drug holidays with bisphosphonates. So drug people with mild or moderate risk might be on the drug for three to five years and then mm-hmm. they get time off for good behavior. Oh. But it's mm-hmm. not really time off because these drugs, the bisphosphonate medications bind to bone, they stay there a long time. So I call it an administrative holiday, but the drug's still <laughs> actually working in the system. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true for estrogens. That's not true for SERMs. That's sure. not true for anabolics sure. because once you stop those, the effect goes away right. very rapidly. Okay.
1: And then we also have um, another injectable called Prolia. Mm -hmm. And that's actually helpful for our patients who have bad kidney, um, you know, kidney dysfunction. And patients with uh, weakly functioning kidneys oftentimes can't tolerate some of the other um, bisphosphonate medications. Mm -hmm. And this is an injection done like a flu shot, essentially getting it twice a year at the doctor's office and tends to be well tolerated. So the point is we really have a lot of options and we use all of these medications regularly. So it's about, you know, the individual person, what's in their medical background, what are their priorities, what do they feel comfortable with, and we take it from there. And oftentimes we um, will change the medication that we're using over time. Mm -hmm. So the the long-term medication, the side effects that you were mentioning, the osteonecrosis of the jaw, the unhealing wounds of the jaw, and the femoral uh, neck fractures. So these seem to be an issue with longer term use. So oftentimes, if it's a younger woman we can use something hormonal for uh, five to ten years and then we know that when we take her off the hormones that bone density is gonna drop right. and then now she's in her 60s and maybe she doesn't need the hormones anymore because she's not having any hot flashes um, then we can step in with our other bone agents and that way we're minimizing the duration of use sure. so we're maximizing the benefit but minimizing some of those long-term there risks go. Very
0: mm-hmm. good. and we're getting a lot
1: of questions we'll get to them
0: here in a second uh, but first uh, Dr. Deal I want to talk about osteoporosis in men. Um, is it sure. common? Or is it more common well, than we think?
2: More common than you think. Okay. About 20% of all hip fractures are men.
0: 20%? Yeah. So
2: it's, it's a substantial minority. Mm-hmm. So there are two differences with men from women, or maybe more. <laughs> but one is men have higher peak bone mass, so about 10% more peak bone mass. So that, that means that they fracture later in life, if okay. they do fracture. And the second thing is they don't have abrupt Uh, decline in hormones like women do at the menopause. Testosterone uh, decline is much more gradual over time. So that tends to protect them Mm. from uh, fractures, but not totally, as I mentioned, 20% of all hip fractures are men. And the same risk factors that we've talked about already for women apply to men. So healthy lifestyle, calcium, vitamin D intake, smoking alcohol, they all apply to men. Mm
0: -hmm. And I don't think we touched on this. There are primary and secondary osteoporosis. Can you explain these two main types and what causes second osteoporosis in men?
2: It's, that's a kind of a nomenclature term. Primary okay. is when uh, there's no apparent secondary cause like rheumatoid arthritis or steroid use right. or vitamin D deficiency. And those are mostly, you know, just the genetics of it. and the secondary causes are those that we can identify a definite reason for I the osteoporosis see. and and hopefully intervene and do something about it
0: okay and then the risks don't differ for men correct the, the risks are both for women yeah and men. there
2: the there's almost total overlap in risk factors yeah. for osteoporosis yeah. between men and women
0: okay great thank you guys well i'm going to go ahead and head to some live questions sure. that we're getting <laughs> um i have uh, brandon uh daily uh, dairy calcium source versus non-dairy calcium source
1: which is better so as long as you're getting your calcium as through a natural food source, uh, uh, that's okay. okay. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. Um, I usually give a printout of um, how much calcium is in different foods, and you can actually find that on our Cleveland Clinic website, because I oversee a lot of the Women's Health Cleveland Clinic patient education materials for the hospital. So if you Google Cleveland Clinic patient education, uh, you'll have a whole bone section that goes into vitamin D and calcium, and we try to update those every few years so that they're, you know, they're uh, they're, uh, up to date with accurate information. Um, So I think it's important for everybody just to add up their typical average day calcium intake. And you can do that with fancy Google calculators or apps, or you could just do simple arithmetic. and just see, because on our website, it lists different types of foods and how much calcium per serving. Sure. Um, one thing to keep in mind, some of the green leafy vegetables, mm-hmm. sometimes our body has a harder time extracting the calcium from those. So I always tell people, don't underestimate with those, or don't over, don't <laughs> overestimate. <laughs> yes. So be accurate. If you're saying, oh, that looks like about a half a cup of kale, don't you know say that's half a cup of kale. I mean, really look at your intake, because sure. you might not be getting quite as much calcium from some of the green leafies. Okay. Great. Good oh, so the, and so
2: then was that was thing. Brandon, right, yes. that, that asked that? Yes. He may be getting at whether, you know, if you go to a website, a vegan website, there's lots of information about um, uh, calcium from dairy versus non-dairy source. Mm-hmm. So there's a fair amount of controversy. I, I think that. Dr. Batur and I agree that calcium, food calcium from any source is probably good, but there are there is controversy in sure. that area.
1: Right. And I think one important thing to bring up is that your body typically can only absorb about 500 milligram calcium at one time. Mm. So what I see a lot of times is somebody who sat down with their fortified cereal, had their fortified orange juice, put their milk, took your their cheese. multivitamin, mm. they said, I'm done for the day. You know, your body's very smart, smarter than us. It, it controls how much calcium it's going to absorb. So mm. it's one thing if you're trying to make sure that you're getting the right amount of calcium intake, break that up throughout the day. Uh-huh. So don't take a supplement of when you already took a multivitamin because you're probably going to just poop that out. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. And then, uh, Shirley, what are uh, things you can do if you already have osteoporosis as a result of Crohn's and other health issues?
2: So, um, well, Crohn's disease, there are a couple of reasons that, that people with Crohn's have low bone mass. One is uh, many of those folks with inflammatory bowel disease have been on steroids or prednisone, Mm -hmm. which can cause bone loss. Mm -hmm. Second reason is that if they, especially if they've had surgery, they may have malabsorption and they may not absorb calcium and vitamin D very well Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Many patients might have low body weight and that's another risk factor. So when you talk about therapy for those folks, you've got to address all those issues and correct to the extent you can all those issues. And if, if they still have low bone mass, then that's where you step in and use one of the active drugs that we have to either prevent bone loss or build up bone. Sure,
0: sure. Now, we're, I wanted to ask you, where do you go for that bone density exam test? Do you go to your primary care physician? Do you need mm-hmm. to see a specialist?
2: Well, so bone density machines used to be uh, more prevalent uh, and they used to be in many, many primary care offices, but mm-hmm. Over the last decade or so, uh, reimbursement for bone density has declined rapidly, and many bone density machines in private offices have gone away, so often uh, they're in hospital-based radiology departments, but there's still a, ver- a very significant number in private offices. It's, uh, the machines cost about $50,000, $70,000. Right. They're not too expensive, but they're not too cheap, right. uh, and th- it's fairly easy to find one. Okay
1: thank you you do it's it's helpful to make sure that you're getting your bone density on the same machine mm-hmm. um, oh, okay. so that you know when you in 2 years when you're following up on that that what you can accuracy? actually exactly so you can compare change because it's like otherwise getting on a scale and trying to determine you know one or 2 pounds difference yeah. on different scales right. and we take great pride i mean both um, dr deal and i read thousands of scans per year and so at our institution, we take great pride in making sure that we're all certified and that we're following the International Society guidelines. So you want to make sure that you're getting it from a professional place and following okay. up on the right. results there. Sure. Great, mm-hmm.
0: thank you. Um, Chris, for women who have been diagnosed with breast cancer and are taking estrogen blockers, what are the natural therapies that they
1: can use to prevent their bones from thinning? So I'm assuming when they say natural, um, Chris, you said, was thinking about um, supp- uh, like supplements. I
0: guess so, yeah.
1: So uh, let me address that first, so because I get that question a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of soy supplements, that's one of the most common questions that we get. Um, soy can't have estrogen-like properties, mm-hmm. and so our oncologists get a little nervous about their use in supplement form, mm-hmm. because when we look at plant estrogen even though it's found in nature it's completely unnatural to our body chemistry we don't have estrogen that looks like that Mm. so uh, on our on our website that I mentioned the calcium sheet um, it also talks about uh, you know the hormone therapies and there we talk about different amounts of soy and how much estrogen they have so if you're doing it naturally through diet I think that's okay but when you're doing it in supplement form, I get a little nervous. Okay. People also take strontium sometimes for um, as a supplement and the you know the recommendation is to not use that. People use fluoride. Mm-hmm. Um in, in fact, if you're just looking at bone density data, you know, fluoride is probably going to help improve your bone density more than many other products that sure. we have, but why don't we use it? It probably increases the risk of fractures. Sure. Um so we really the medications that we recommend have been really tested, and we're looking at outcomes, like fracture data. Um, so the problem with some of the supplements, they're, although they're labeled as natural, we don't really have right. safety data. Um, FDA. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I recommend supplements in my practice, but I'm a little nervous because I, in terms of osteoporosis health, sure. you know, bone health, um, outside of the calcium and vitamin D, we don't have data about safety or effectiveness of it others. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So
0: it's okay to eat soy- diet in your in your diet but not Supplements probably stay away from that. Right.
1: As l- and as long as you're not overdoing it. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, again, some of our oncologists do it. Because depending on the type of breast cancer treatment you're receiving, mm-hmm. um, some, like tamoxifen, for example, work by really competing for that estrogen receptor. Mm-hmm. So how, if you're getting a little extra estrogen from a lot of soy, it's probably okay. Um, but for medications like aromatase inhibitors, which function by really dropping that estrogen mm-hmm. level, uh, the oncologists really worry about any kind of estrogen seeping into the system that it may actually make it not work as well
0: all right and then i have uh, gloria i have osteoporosis what can i take to relieve stiffness and pain as i am on warfarin
2: so she she doesn't have stiffness and pain from the osteoporosis as we mentioned it's silent right. so her stiffness and pain is probably related to degenerative joint disease mm-hmm. or i'm not sure where the stiffness and pain Yes okay, right. and that's a different issue for stiffness and pain other than physical therapy and stretching and heat and all the non medical non medicine type of therapies. We often use nonsteroidal anti inflammatory drugs for stiffness and pain, but that's really not related to osteoporosis.
0: And that's why it's called silent bone thief, right?
1: Because
2: Correct. you never know what's happening.
1: I think the big source of confusion is because they both have the term osteo in it, right. which means bone, right. but osteoporosis literally means porous bone, so it's weaker, and osteoarthritis, which causes a lot of the pain, means inflammation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, uh, Bonnie, uh, I'm a kidney transplant
0: patient, and on and work out and walk a lot what else can I do to stop
1: the pain more pain questions
2: more pain yeah we have a well I don't questions. know why she has pain so that's a hard one to, to <laughs> answer sorry
1: yeah yeah, yeah needs an evaluation probably with rheumatology
0: okay great so I'm gonna go ahead and see here we got Lydia what are the pros and cons of tell me if I'm doing this right is it reclast infusion
1: Reclassed, reclassed yeah. infusion So the reclass is one of the bisphosphonates that we mentioned, Mm -hmm. Um, well tolerated, we have great data on the effectiveness. Mm -hmm. It's given once a year and we use it for at least three to five years and then do a bone holiday for most people unless it's severe. Mm -hmm. Um, And really uh, there's not many contraindications, so one of the reasons we wouldn't use it if somebody had significant kidney dysfunction, Mm -hmm. Uh, we'd be hesitant about that. But one of the nice things about the injections is that we're guaranteeing that it's being absorbed. So when a patient takes a oral pill, like for example if they take oral Fosamax, roughly about one one thousandth of that is absorbed. So okay. if they're not taking it properly on an empty stomach, they're drinking it with their coffee, absorption might be an issue. Or if somebody has bowel issues that prevent absorption. So at least we're bypassing all that and we're right. ensuring that it's absorbed. Um, and also if somebody does have issues with, uh, you know, uh, Reflux esophagitis type of symptoms from the pills. Mm-hmm. Then the um, IV formulation helps bypass mm-hmm. that. Okay. Do you and have it's a
2: simple, yeah, it's a simple uh, infusion. It takes about 20 minutes. You have, you do have to have an IV. Right. Um, about 10% of patients get a post-infusion reaction. We call it flu-like. It's not the flu, but they may have low-grade aches and pains, low-grade mm-hmm. fever for 24 to 48 hours.
0: And that's 10% of
2: Yeah, oh, okay. it's a, it's a Medicare B drug so it's covered very well by Medicare. Uh, the, the out of pocket expenses are usually very small. I actually went generic a few years ago and the price for instance of that drug um, is like $350 for an infusion once a year. So it's really actually very cost-effective medication.
1: Great. They're actually using it in oncology too, some of these medications mm-hmm. and bisphosphonates to prevent metastasis to the bone. Oh, so wow. there's probably some other health benefits that need so to be more studied. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and okay, and I have another question about another medicine. Allison wants to know, what are the pros and cons of Prolia?
2: Right, and I think Dr. Batur mentioned Prolia. Prolia, so we've talked about bisphosphonates that are chemicals, and they uh, bind to bone, and when uh, an osteoclast comes along the bone surface to resorb the bone, Mm -hmm. uh, the bisphosphonate's taken up, and the osteoclast function is inhibited. Mm -hmm. Prolia, or denosumab, is completely different. It is a monoclonal antibody against rank ligand. Rank ligand is a cytokine that's absolutely essential for osteoclast function, osteoclast being the cells that resort bone. It's a shot given every six months. When you stop this drug, the effect goes away very rapidly, so we're not talking about drug holidays with this drug. Mm -hmm. It's a very effective drug. We actually have a 10-year study now in 2,500 people Mm -hmm. showing its safety over a 10-year period. It does have some of the same side effects as the bisphosphonates, including rarely these atypical femur fractures or osteonecrosis of the jaw. Mm. I should say something about ONJ, osteonecrosis of the jaw. 90% of patients who get that tend to be the cancer patients who are getting the high dose medications Dr. Batur mentioned. If they have cancer, they tend to get reclassed or prolia in super high doses, 10 times the osteoporosis dose. Mm. About 5 to 10% of these ONJ cases are in osteoporosis patients, but in most cases, these are patients who have dental procedures that involve exposed bone, like a tooth extraction, or very poor dental hygiene. Mm-hmm. So that for that reason, when, we, when we're starting one of these drugs on a patient and they have some dental issues, we always like them to get those dental issues cleaned up yeah. and taken care of before we start the medication. Sure.
1: And one more plug-in for the hormonal therapies. So the, the hormone therapies and the serums that I mentioned, they are not—they have not been linked to some of these long-term risks, such as of the jaw and of the femoral neck. So for women who are appropriate candidates or who are suffering suffering with um, a lot of menopausal symptoms, they can't sleep, um, vaginal dryness—I mean, a whole menopause complex, mood mm-hmm. concerns. This is some way. This is a way that you can avoid the long-term use of one medication. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Yeah, and the anabolic drugs, the Bone Builders, for, for Timlos, they're not associated with atypical fractures mm-hmm. or, or ONJ either.
0: Oh, all right, and then we are having questions about Fosamax. Um, so Terry wants to know, are there natural treatments without taking drugs such as Fosamax?
1: So uh, similar to what we talked about before, there's, there's really no natural. natural supplement yeah. that we know that works. Uh-huh. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if we lived in a country where there was more strict regulation of the supplement market, I would feel so much more comfortable. Yeah. But we're seeing increased number of liver transplants from supplements. Because like, you can make a lot of claims on supplements. Yeah. Because, you know, everybody wants to be healthy. And there's people with money in their pockets. So it's a business model built on very little uh, oversight by um, sure. any federal, yeah. you know, regulation, FDA. Regulation, yeah. Exactly. And... Um, So there's people out there to make a buck, and they may have the best intentions of putting out a pure product, but there's issues with impurities. Um, They found rat poison, chemotherapy agents in some of the supplements, and without the data to show that there's any supplement that helps, I'm a little nervous about recommending it. And supplements you don't need a prescription for, you could just go get it from wherever, or online. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the scary thing. And and a, and
2: yeah. And some people, they, they ask me, can I do this with just calcium and vitamin D alone, for instance? And what I usually tell folks is that we have randomized control trials that led to the approval of all the drugs we've talked about today, right. and the placebo group. Is calcium and vitamin D. So we know that when you add an active medication to calcium and vitamin D that you reduce your risk for fracture. Calcium and vitamin D are important and when you are on one of these medications you still need calcium because calcium is the building block of bone. Fosamax is not calcium, you still need sure, the calcium. Sure.
1: It's kind of a quirky analogy. I mean it's, it's not perfect but I, I like the w- the way it feels in my head. You know, I think of calcium and vitamin D as a bunch of bricks. And I think of the medications that we're recommending when the bone disease is really bad as like a brick layer. Mm. And so when you have a wall that's falling apart and the bricks need to be put together, dumping more calcium and vitamin D, so dumping more bricks isn't gonna fix the problem. And having a bunch of bricks and no brick layer isn't going to help, or having the brick layer, which is the medication, without the adequate uh, number of bricks, the right. calcium and vitamin D isn't going to help. So it's that delicate balance of both yeah. that you need. Yeah,
0: that makes mm-hmm.
1: sense. Um, and then Joanne wants to know if uh, Fosamax
0: causes jaw pain.
2: Well, jaw pain. Right. So, first of all, uh, there are lots of reasons for jaw pain. We have patients who walk in the clinic and they've Mm -hmm. stopped their Fosamax because they have clicking in their jaw and that's TMJ, that has nothing to do with OMJ. There are many reasons for for jaw pain, muscular pain, uh, grinding your teeth at night, everything that that causes pain around in the jaw or the face is not related to Fosamax. Osteonecrosis of the jaw, there's a definition for it, it's exposed bone that persists for more than six weeks. So if you look in your mouth you'll see an area of, uh, where the gum's gone and where you can see exposed bone, and that persists. That's ONJ. The rest of the causes for pain in the jaw or something else.
1: Okay. Thank you for asking that because that comes up a lot. Yeah. And let's not forget ONJ and the atypical femoral fractures actually occur in people not on these medications. Oh, okay. Okay, so this is not just from these medications. Right. So in fact, if you look at hip fractures, it turns out a good number of them mm. can be these atypical fractures in people not on meds. Right. Um, it just we're just concerned that it may slightly increase the risk, yeah. but the these number these slightly increased risks that we're talking about are in the rare category, sure. one sure. out of a thousand or less. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And then, um, Darlene wants to know, um, should I take vitamin D or D3, and what is the difference?
2: D2 or D3? So... Uh,
0: vitamin D or D3? So
2: there's two types of D. There's D2, mm-hmm. and that's usually the prescription that we write. It's 50,000 okay. unit D2. It's plant-based. Okay. D3 is is over-the-counter, so that's where you get 400, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000. You can just pick it up off the shelf. That's mm-hmm. that's a, an animal source product, okay? D three may be a little more potent than D two. Not a huge difference, so either either is fine.
0: So D three is the
1: animal. Uh huh.
2: D two is the vegetable. Okay.
1: Consistency is the key. And the nice thing about vitamin D is it's fat soluble, so it's one of the only vitamins that you can take more in lump sum. Mm -hmm. And so I always tell people if you forgot it for a week and you say, oops, uh, then you can actually double up the next week and it's similar to taking it every day. And you you shouldn't do that with other vitamins, but vitamin D is one that's reasonably safe as long as you're sticking to the lower um, over-the-counter doses and not a high prescription dose.
0: And I'll follow up with Kathy's question. She wants to talk about high dosage of vitamin D. Is it safe and do you need to take calcium with it?
1: Um, you know vitamin D you ask uh, 20 different people you're going to get 60 different answers Um, so back in the day when we really didn't have as much data on vitamin D I would use the higher dose supplements in my practice the Mm -hmm. 50,000 units and I still have to in some women that have had for example bariatric surgery and have really hard time absorbing but I favor finding a lower dose that they can take regularly Mm -hmm. um, and that that way I can see because I've seen some people accidentally take we use the 50,000 units sometimes one to two times a week but I've seen people accidentally taking it once a day Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot more it's more there's some predisposition to yeah to error with that Um, so I really try to find what's the minimum that the patient can use and usually I don't recheck levels for about three four months to get a real idea of the plateau uh, your your yeah. approach may be different.
2: No, it's it's. I agree with that. Yeah. And uh, we we tend to use the fifty thousand in patients who really have very low vitamin D's mm-hmm. because we want to replete them very quickly. Because people who have really severe vitamin D deficiency don't have can have not osteoporosis but osteomalacia. Mm-hmm. Osteomalacia is a failure of bone mineralization, and vitamin D is really required for that. So mm-hmm. somebody the typical patient would be patient who's had bowel surgery and they have what we call short bowel syndrome and they come in and they uh, have a vitamin D level of 5, normal Mm -hmm. being 30. And those folks have a lot of unmineralized bone. They have something we call osteoate in the bone. And those patients need very quick repletion of vitamin D in order to get their bone density, bone mineralized. And that's Mm -hmm. where we tend to use the the bigger pills I that know. Dr. Batour was talking sure. about, the 50,000.
1: And we should probably talk about um, the optimal level of vitamin D, because mm-hmm. that's also an area of confusion. So the National Institute of Medicine guidelines um, say anything over 20 is adequate. Uh-huh. Um, but really with bone health, that's, that's for a general population. But for uh, patients who are having a lot of achiness or uh, those with osteoporosis, many of us would feel that that's suboptimal, Mm -hmm. and we try to strive for over 30, ideally 40 to 50. Um, I'm a little nervous about too much vitamin D. Again, since it's fat-soluble, you may not be able to pee it all out, and you can get toxic on it. So although we have data on safety, um, you know, the higher ranges, even more than 100, and you know, surfers and people who are out in the sun getting it naturally, Mm -hmm. we don't have that safety data for supplements. Um, So I try to stick to somewhere between 30 and 80, mostly the 40 40 to 50 range, really. Um, I don't know if your approach is different. Yeah,
2: and then the normal is 30 to 80. 30 to 80. uh, And Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, there is controversy about whether you need 20, whether you need 30 nanograms per deciliter. But uh, most folks in the osteoporosis feel good go with 30 nanograms or greater.
0: Okay, Great, and then uh, Agnes wants to know, I'm on a weekly medication for osteopenia slash osteoporosis. I follow the rule on an empty stomach and do not lie down or drink my coffee for 30 minutes to one hour. How beneficial is the injection over the pills?
2: So so she's asking whether taking the injection, which would be Prolia, Mm -hmm. or the infusion, which would be Reclass, might Mm -hmm. be better than Fosamax. Now, if you take your Fosamax properly, as she's doing, mm-hmm. uh, empty stomach, big glass of water, don't have anything to eat or drink for at least 30, maybe even longer, uh, it's going to be effective therapy. Okay. Uh, the where I think where you get some improvement with either Prolia or reclass, are in patients who are not quite as compliant with their oral medicines yeah. or forget their oral medicines or take it with a cup of coffee, as Dr. Batura mentioned earlier. So. In in those cases, the injection or the infusion may be a better choice.
0: Okay, great. And then Gwendolyn, what can you do about uh, constipation due
1: to calcium uh, supplements? Yes, that's a good question. So sometimes just fixing the behaviors that Worsen constipation as helpful. So what do I mean? Really pushing the fluids, um, especially when the weather starts to turn. People don't realize that they're getting relatively dehydrated because mm. the heaters are kicking in. So I really encourage patients who are constipated to really aim for six to eight glasses of water a day, um, minimizing other agents that are constipating. You always want to make sure that, you know, thyroid has been checked and you don't have another reason to be constipated. Sure. Um, benefit, you know, I, I don't want to yeah, advertise certain supplements but you know it's a fiber form benefiber is one of our favorites in our clinic um, just staying regular with that um, there's some data that um, calcium phosphate might be a little bit better in terms of constipation mm-hmm. um, you know personally I've seen that to be true mm-hmm and you can find that, in it's harder to find, but you can find that in some, you know, gummies. Okay. Um, used to be able to find it as Posture D, but I think they got rid of that a while ago. Oh. Um, I, I've seen it at Sam's and Costco. It's chewables. Okay. Right.
2: So calcium, that brings up the point of calcium supplements come in. Calcium carbonate, calcium citrate, calcium phosphate, calcium gluconate. Most patients, the most common on the market is calcium carbonate. So that's what's in Tums or mm-hmm. Oscal or Caltrate. CitraCal, I, th- I find a little bit less um, mm-hmm. constipating too. And the advantage of taking calcium citrate is it's absorbed independent of acid. So you don't have to take it with a meal. It, you can use it in patients who have a disease called pernicious anemia where they have no stomach acid. It's absorbed very well too. The disadvantage of the CitraCal is the um, the Elemental calcium is uh, less, so you have to take a bigger pill and more pills often with citrical mm-hmm. than you do with carbonate, calcium carbonate mass. It's
1: a little bit more expensive, too. Yeah. And then if, uh, I'm glad he mentioned about the acid, because uh, keep in mind that if you're on medications to block stomach acid, like your Prilosec, your Nexium, which a lot of people are on, then you really should stick to something like the um, calcium citrate as opposed to the calcium carbonates, because you're mm-hmm. not going to absorb the calcium carbonate as well. This as well. Sure.
0: Um, Okay, well, I'm gonna give you one more question before I let you guys go. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lynn wants to know what things cause me to have a higher chance of getting osteoporosis. And I'll kind of end it with that. We can talk about, because we've talked about that earlier, lifestyle. Yeah. Choices, dietary, and then also I want to kind of touch on pain because I feel like a lot of people were asking about pain management with this. So we want to kind of clarify everything here as a kind of our, our conclusion for, for today. I think
1: one thing I'll touch on for this question that we haven't touched on is women with premature menopause. Mm-hmm. So those would be uh, defined as um, late, before age 40. Um, these women have accelerated not just bone aging, but heart aging and brain aging. Um, so these women really should be on hormone therapy mm-hmm. until the average, unless there's a reason not to be, until about age 50, 51, 52, the natural ages of menopause, um, so that we really don't you know, create osteoporosis 20 years before sure. they were meant to. Sure. And, you know, we oftentimes do that if even if a woman went through menopause at age 43, a little earlier, but not the definition of premature right, menopause. Right. Um, so unless she has a compelling reason not to be, she usually will feel better, and she'll protect her bones. Mm-hmm.
2: Great. Yeah, and you ask about pain. As we, as we already have mentioned, this is a silent uh, disease until you have a fracture. There's some folks who have vertebral fractures or spine fractures, and they have a tremendous amount of pain. And in many cases, that pain will resolve over 6 or 12 weeks. But in some some cases, it may not. There's a procedure called kyphoplasty, where they actually insert a cement-type substance in the vertebral body. And that sometimes helps resolve pain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes patients who have chronic pain end up in, in medical spine centers and places that deal with chronic pain pain in the yeah. spine yeah. Uh, another common cause of pain with a fracture or sacral fractures or pelvic fractures they can be very painful um, and you know uh, we do our best to treat them as we do many other pain patients Sure,
0: sure. well thank you both so much for taking thank time <laughs> educating us in sure. the audience and thank you for watching we hope you enjoyed today's discussion and to download our free osteoporosis guide and learn more about prevention and treatment options please go to clevelandclinic.org osteoporosis